0: Uh, You may have noticed, sitting right below me, there's this great pulpit Bible down there. A lovely couple in our church donated that, and I was thinking about what could I do with it so that, uh, as a good reminder, and so it's sitting right there as a reminder that from this pulpit, the Word of God will be proclaimed. That's what we're here for, or what I'm here for. We're here to worship, obviously, that's the bigger thing, but... From this pulpit at this time, so long as God gives me breath and strength, we will proclaim the word of God here. All right, that's why it's sitting down there. If you come up and have a look, you'll notice it's open to Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. And you may remember what that verse says. It's when the people of God say to Ezra the scribe, bring the book of the law. And it's the first time in scripture when a man stands at a pulpit, opens the word of God, reads the word of God and expounds and explains it. And that's the significance of it. Let's read together from Acts chapter 10, the first two verses, and then we'll skip down to verse 34 and read to the end of the chapter. Acts chapter 10 and beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, And gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. And then verse 34. And you know the story in between. Uh, God sends Peter to meet and speak to Cornelius. And this is his message. And verse 34 says, Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were impressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day, granting that he become visible, not to all the people, but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, "Surely no one can refuse the water for those for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Excuse me. Five weeks ago, we saw the beginning of the story of Cornelius. We saw how God was clearly at work in his life. We saw how he was responding to God's working to the light that God had given him and how his response was a challenge to all of us as to how we were responding for the greater light that we had received. He had come into contact with the Jews in Caesarea He'd begun to practice a religious devotion to what he understood. But Cornelius' religious devotion and practice could not save him any more than it could save the Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians, etc., under whose influence that he had come. He had not yet attained to that salvation which is available to all. And in verse 2, we can see that Cornelius was a devout man, meaning he was pious or religious. His devotion was exercised through religious duty and practice. And in Acts chapter 17 and verse 23, Luke uses the same Greek word in our text for devotion or devout in recounting Paul's speech to the Corinthians. And in that context, it describes their worship in ignorance. Cornelius' devotion was a legalistic striving to earn God's favor through religious duties and practices. But religious duty alone cannot earn us favor with God. In verse 2 again, we see that Cornelius was devout in his God-fearing ways. Cornelius had a reverence and a respect for God, but it was a reverence and a respect apart from a relationship with God. It was a fear of God, but from a distance. It was a fear of God without God's acceptance. It was a fear without the beautiful uh, joining together of joy and confidence and fear of knowing God's adopting love for him as his child. I read that and I think about my friend Chris in Canada. Great guy, had a fear of God, but certainly did not know a saving relationship with the living God, despite having heard the gospel many, many times. He certainly respected God, but no saving relationship. And reverence and respect for God, apart from faith in God, cannot save us. In verse 2, we see again that Cornelius was faithful in prayer. But the religious practice of prayer cannot save us unless that prayer is offered by faith based on an accepted sacrifice that provides atonement for our sin and reconciles us into a relationship with God. Cornelius was devoted in his prayer, but he was still not saved. You may be tempted to interrupt and say, how do we know for sure that he wasn't saved? Some have suggested that he was saved. In fact, John Calvin, in his commentary, made the comment that he believed he was saved. In my earlier study, I was tempted to kind of think that was possibly true. But Scripture always interprets Scripture. what do we see in Acts chapter 11 and verse 14? The angel is reported by Peter to have told Cornelius to send for Peter, who will come and speak words by which he will be saved. So prior to Peter's coming and preaching, he was not yet saved. Notice again in verse 2 that Cornelius was generous to the poor and the needy. And as wonderful a practice as giving to the poor is, outside of a faith relationship with God, it earns us nothing with God. In regard to all sorts of religious devotion and practice, the Bible says in Isaiah 64 and verse 6 that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. And Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us without faith in God, it is impossible to please Him. Cornelius as we said five weeks ago, was responding to God's working. His devoted religious practice of prayer and almsgiving were steps in the journey that God was bringing him on towards faith. His prayer and alms had risen before God as a memorial, and God was pleased with his response so far. But there must still yet be that final step of realizing that salvation can never be attained by good works alone, but only by faith in God. Cornelius must yet humble himself to receive salvation from a Roman crucified Jewish carpenter and rabbi. And we're going to see that just shortly. So what about our day and age? Are there religious devotion and practices done in our day and age? And certainly there are. Things like regularly attending a place of worship apart from faith in God. Reading scripture, listening to sermons, praying diligently, reading good Christian books, going on pilgrimages, giving money to the poor, depriving ourselves of food or drinks to achieve some higher level of spirituality or state of mind. Maybe never using alcohol or tobacco or caffeine or certain foods. Helping poor and needy people inside or outside the church. Those are all religious devotions and there's nothing wrong with them. But most of them, just as Cornelius activities are all perfectly good, most of those actions and prohibitions are perfectly good, but only, only when they are the outworking, the expression of a faith relationship with God by His grace through faith. But when they're only religious practices without the exercise of faith, then there is a great Danger attached to them. You say, why? What danger would that be? Because the enemy of our souls loves to keep people just outside of the truth while having them look like and deceive into thinking that they're living in agreement with God's truth. So The the, the sneakiest trick the devil ever says is, is just a shade over from the truth. So close and yet infinitely far away. And that's the danger of those religious devotions, those religious practices that are done. You can come to church here week in, week out, year in, year out, and outside of a faith relationship with God, it will accomplish you nothing with God. There has to be that element of faith in there. I heard of a survey conducted recently in America that asked, will you go to heaven when you die? The majority answered, yes, they believe they would go to heaven. Great. And they asked, on what basis would you go to heaven? And these were the answers, some of the answers given. My good deeds outweigh my bad, so I'll go to heaven. I've lived by the golden rule, or I've always kept the Ten Commandments. I've always gone to church, so I'll go to heaven. I regularly give money to help the poor. I'm not as bad as so many other people out there, I'll tell you. I've never lied, cheated, or stolen anything which is, by the way, you just did the first one because you probably have cheated and you probably have stolen and you just did lie right there and then, so scratch that one. I've never been convicted of a crime, and so on. In every case, those answers that were given were either comparing themselves to their own standard or somebody else's standards, but not to God's standard. In every case. Listen. Listen. If your answer to the question of why should God allow you into heaven begins with something like, I've done this, that, or the other thing, or I've always tried to, blank, or I'm not as bad as so many others, then based on the authority of the Bible, I must tell you, you have no genuine hope of entering into heaven whatsoever. None. But if your answer is Christ... Why would God let you into heaven? Christ, He died for me. I trust in Him. That's my only answer. Not all the sermons I've preached, not all the work I've done, not all the bits and pieces, not all the religious duties and issues that I have carried out in my life account me for nothing when I stand before the Lord. This is my one claim to entrance. Jesus died for me. That's it. And you have the Bible's assurance of salvation to heaven, if that is your answer. And I pray that it is. Listen, even if we could live an utterly sinless, perfect life of devotion all through our lives, from the moment of birth to the moment of death, we still wouldn't be saved. We wouldn't have a relationship with God. And you say, how is that possible? It's because of the fundamental reality of a sin nature. We're all born with a sin nature. We all inherit it from Adam and Eve. Or in a better way to understand that, our sin nature was applied to us by God as a result of Adam and Eve's first sin in the garden. We were in Adam when he sinned, and so we inherit the same sin nature that he inherited. Our sin nature drives each of us to love sin and to commit sin. It affects every human being ever conceived in their entirety. Our reason, our will, our affections, our bodies are all affected and corrupted by that sin nature. And the guilt of that sin nature can only be removed through the work of Christ on the cross, received by faith in God. No amount of religious devotion or practice can remove the guilt of the sins we committed. Only Christ can wash it away. If you want to know more about how that sin nature works and sins, show up on Wednesday night because we're going to talk about that as part of Colossians study. Okay, my friends, listen. Beware. If you think that your faithfulness to religious practices makes you acceptable to God, it's a pathway to destruction. And the devil loves to whisper in your ear, you know, you're not so bad because you went to church today. You know, you're not so bad because you read your Bible. In fact, you didn't just do one Bible reading. You did several. You're you're pretty good. You're, You're getting up there because you've read three or four devotionals today. You're doing okay. And he just gently pumps you up, pushes up that pride a little bit. And all of a sudden, your basis, your hope is based on the fact that you're doing the right things. Listen, you could read your Bible 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, every 60 minutes of every hour. It wouldn't gain you anything with God. He loves you because He loves you. Yes, you will grow in your spiritual sanctification. That's a natural outworking of reading the word of God and prayer for sure. But who you are in Christ, your acceptance with God is absolutely secure only in Christ. Right? Brothers and sisters, let's be aware. Let's be absolutely sure that our devotion to God flows from faith in God and not as a substitute for it because it's a sneaky, slippery trap to sit on. To start to think that all our devotion, all our doings for God are making us acceptable. It's faith in God and faith alone. Okay? Cornelius was responding to the light that he had been given by God. And God had displayed immense grace toward Cornelius. He did it by sending the angel to him, he did it by commanding Cornelius to send for Peter and by sending Peter, sending for Peter, to proclaim Christ to him and his friends. God was displaying His grace to save him and us from a religious devotion into a living, faith-filled relationship with Christ. So let's consider, secondly, Peter's message to Cornelius of the salvation provided by God. See that in verses 36 to 42. In verse 36, Peter tells them the message he's about to proclaim is the same message of peace that God sent through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, to the sons of Israel. So the same gospel message that went to them is coming to the Gentiles. God's message through Peter to the Gentiles follows the same basic elements of Peter's sermon on Pentecost morning. Back in Acts chapter 2, you see there, Um, All the same elements are coming up. But notice here, the one who is active in this work of salvation is God himself. It's God who anoints Jesus. It's God who accompanies Jesus all through his ministry. It's God who raised Jesus. And it's God who appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. And it's God who is sending his witnesses to preach the gospel to us, to Cornelius and his friends. This salvation and our Savior are God's provision because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. In verse 38, we see that it's God who anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Peter wants them to see the crucial reality of the Spirit's presence for Jesus' work of ministry and salvation. It displays God sending and empowering Him for His work. In Luke 4:18, Jesus himself said that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. Not only, <clears throat> not only was Jesus Christ truly man and truly God, he was filled with the Spirit of God signifying God's authority over him. It signified God's choosing him to be his servant, fulfilling Isaiah 42 and all the other servant songs <clears throat> excuse me, in the book of Isaiah. God's empowering him for all his service was through the filling of the Spirit. God's approval of all his service and his ministering on behalf of God to his people. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 3 and verse 1 that Jesus is God's apostle Sent to speak for God. And he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did good works and healings which they already knew about. In Acts 2 and verse 22, Peter is describing Christ. And he said he's a man attested and approved by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him. No ordinary man could do The works that Jesus did because he is truly God and sent by God. Jesus said in John 5 and verse 36, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. He was with him. Verse 38 tells us that God accompanied Jesus throughout his ministry. The explanation for Jesus' good works and healing was that God was with him. Peter wants them and us to know that Jesus was no ordinary traveling, teaching, preaching, miracle-working rabbi. He was filled with the Spirit, and he knew the presence and the power of God throughout his ministry. In verse 39... Peter goes on to describe how the disciples themselves are witnesses to of all Jesus' works and His death. They witnessed His death, which was by hanging on a cross. And that moment must have been an absolutely cataclysmic moment for all those Romans standing there, listening to this great message of a great Savior of sinners. To the Romans, heroes were mighty men of great victories in military and political wars. Julius Caesar was one of their greatest heroes. He died at 46 years of age. He was a military general who never fought a war he did not win. He was a statesman, a lawgiver, an orator, and a historian. And here Peter stands and he's preaching and proclaiming to them that the only savior of sinners from the wrath of God was completely unlike any of their heroes. He was crucified on a Roman cross between two thieves. That idea, that concept must have been the epitome of a cultural reversal for them. To the Romans, no condemned crucified man could ever be considered worthy of worship or trust Or love or life commitment, for Cornelius to grasp that, he would have had to take a massive step of humbling himself to accept that he could be saved by a crucified man. Their writer and historian, a man named Cicero, described crucifixion as, quote, "...that most cruel and disgusting penalty." It was the epitome of shame and humiliation for them. For the Romans to accept and believe Peter's words that this Jesus accomplished salvation for all mankind by being crucified required nothing short of divine intervention, humbling them to see that their only hope was through the shame and the glory of the cross, which is exactly what happened. It's exactly what happens every time someone comes to faith in Christ. It's a divine intervention when God deals with the heart of man directly. And we'll see more of that in a minute. Notice also in verse 39, Peter's implied connection to the Old Testament. Peter says they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. The law said in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 23 that anyone who hanged on a tree was cursed. And Paul picks up that idea and he expounds it in Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. He says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we, all of us, would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Not only must they and we accept that Christ, the Savior of sinners, was crucified to save us, but that he was cursed as he did it. Why? Why must he be crucified and why must he be cursed? The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Beloved, how much do you love the Lord Jesus? I pray that as you're listening, you won't be thinking not another gospel message groaning in your heart. We've heard it all before. Beloved, if that's what's going through your mind, I fear for you. This ought to be the sweetest and greatest message anyone can ever share and we'll never ever get tired of hearing it. Listen, He redeemed and saved us by becoming a curse for us so that we would not have to be cursed for our sin. He died under the law's curse to forever free us from that same curse. He was hung upon a cross to endure God's wrath, to save us from that same wrath of God that we had no, nothing else to expect but that. He died in shame and humiliation to end our shame and humiliation for sin. He endured separation from God to bring us reconciliation with God. He died in your place that you might not have to suffer eternal death in hell. That's the greatest piece of news ever to be proclaimed in the entire history of humanity or ever will be. Why? Why would God do all of this? And the answer is as profound as it is simple, love. God's immense love for his people. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And God did exactly that. In Romans 5 verse 10, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through Christ. That's love. In Romans 5, 8, the Bible says, but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he gave us everything we wanted. No, he didn't. He gave us the one thing we could not do without. Christ died for us. In John 13, verse 1, the Bible says that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them and us to the end. In 1 John 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, brothers and sisters, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Let that thought just soak into your heart. Behold what love. This love displayed by God for his people is unlike any love that any human can either express or comprehend. In fact, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they will be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner man so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith and that they they, and we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and the length and the depth and the breadth, the immensity of the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. That's why he did it. Because you have some inherent thing that he values? No. But he did it to show you how great his love for you was. But notice also in verse 40, God raised Jesus from the dead. The story didn't end with crucifixion. I understand, appreciate why the Catholics used that image of Christ on a cross. But praise God, the story didn't end with Christ on a cross. The story ends that God raised him from the dead. Not ends, but it carries on there. He had no sin in him, so death had hold on him. From the depths of shame and humiliation on the cross to the heights of glory and honor and victory, God raised Jesus from the dead. You say, how do we know? How do you you prove that Jesus rose from the dead? The Bible gives multiple witnesses that saw his tomb was empty. The two Marys and Salome, then Peter and John, they all saw it. The same witnesses saw and experienced him alive after his resurrection. Those faithful women, then the 12 disciples, and then 500 brothers and sisters all together at the same moment. And last of all, Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. His friends touched him and talked him and watched him eat. His followers saw him ascending visibly into heaven. Those witnesses' lives were dramatically and permanently changed. They endured horrific sufferings and violent death for all but one of Jesus' 12 apostles. They endured it for the truth of Jesus Christ, crucified and raised and exalted and returning. God raised Jesus from the dead and permitted Him to be seen by by witnesses and borne witness to. God displayed Him to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection. God validated our faith by His resurrection. God gave us the great hope of our own resurrection by Christ's resurrection. But also, in verse 42, God appointed Him as judge. God has sent Christ to be our Savior, and God is sending Him back to judge the living and the dead, to save His own and condemn the rest. In Mark 13, verses 24 to 27, tell us that after that tribulation, after the sun is darkened, and the moon refuses to give light, the stars will be falling and the heavens shaken, then Jesus will come in clouds with great power and great glory. The Bible tells us in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 34, they tell us that he will gather all the nations before him. He will judge. Literally means to separate them one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. Those who are his own sheep, trusting in him alone for salvation, will be gathered to his right hand and welcomed into the kingdom prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. And those who are the goats will be separated to his left hand, and he will say to them, "Depart from me, our cursed ones." Into the eternal fire which He has prepared for the devil and his angels, God has appointed him to be the judge of all mankind. My friends, listen and make no mistake. Jesus will be both our savior and judge into eternal salvation or he will be our judge alone to eternal condemnation in hell. A savior, he came to save us and reconcile us to God. He came to bring us together to make the many into one new body and one new man, never to be separated. My friends, let me ask you the question, in whose hands are you resting? Are you resting on your good works of religious devotion? There's no hope whatsoever. You're resting on Christ because in Him there is absolute and certain hope, because God in Christ forgives the sins of those who trust in Him. That's exactly Peter's point in verse 43. Faith in God will save you from God's wrath. God provided a Savior. Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised. God provided us salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're forgiven of sin and we're justified, meaning that we are declared right in God's sight. So how do we know? Maybe you struggle with this. How do we know that we're saved? We're truly forgiven. I said a while back that the Romans In order for them to believe that a crucified Jewish carpenter is their only hope of a savior and salvation would take an intervention by God. It was and is the same for us. God the Holy Spirit intervenes and opens the eyes of our heart and he thirdly applies that salvation to us. Notice in verses 43 to 48, the Bible says that while Peter is still speaking, He's still in mid-sermon and God powerfully and dramatically works. Remember what the Bible said in Romans 10 verse 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as they're listening, God is working. God is opening their eyes to see the truth of the gospel. If you're sitting here this morning and you feel in your heart that urge, that yearning to know more about what we're talking about, You feel in your heart a desire that says I don't know if I'm truly saved but I want to know more. There's a desire in my heart to know this God that you're talking about. That's the Spirit of God at work in you. Listen and respond. In Acts 16 and verse 14 the Bible tells us that God opens our hearts to respond. He opens our hearts and He changes our inclination. He tells us in the Bible tells us in Philippians two twelve and 13, He works in us both to will and to do and respond. The Spirit of God is doing that work in us. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.13 that after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of our salvation, having also believed we were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 2, 8 tells us that faith is a gift of God and it's given by The Holy Spirit. They believe the message. What does it mean to believe? Well, belief itself is an intellectual conviction of the truth of something. Belief happens in the heart, which is the very center of a person's soul. That part of you that makes you, you. God does His work in the heart. We hear the message of the gospel of truth. We accept and agree that it's true, exactly as given in Scripture. We're sinners bound to face an eternity in hell, but Jesus died in our place to save us. Trusting Him, we're saved from wrath and sin and death and hell, and so we entrust ourselves entirely to Christ. Listen, it is not believing the facts of salvation. I've heard that said over and over again. No, it's faith in God. I can prove the facts of salvation, but salvation is faith in God. It's trusting God, throwing yourself entirely upon Christ with no other hope and looking for nothing else to save you but Christ and Christ alone the result of that is we are forgiven of sin just as Peter says they believe the message how do we know because the Bible tells us they received the spirit of God in Acts 10 verse 44 the spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message and we're going to talk more next week about what this is but notice for now you say why did the spirit fall at that why did they all speak in tongues that's a great big question Everybody wants to know about this text you know why Is so that all those Jews standing there, hearing the Gentiles speaking in tongues, were amazed. Why? Because all of a sudden the blinders fell off and they suddenly realized that God's salvation went to not just the Jews, but to Gentiles also. And all the Gentiles had received that gift of salvation and repentance and the filling of the Spirit, and the speaking of tongues. They understood, hey, not just us. Them too. That's why it happened. It demonstrated to their amazement that the Gentiles had received the same gift of salvation and indwelling spirit as they had. There was no difference between them. There truly were brothers and sisters in Christ without any distinction. They believed the message. They believed in Jesus. They received the Spirit of God. They exalted God with voice and later with their works. They were baptized in water. And we're going to look at all of that next week as part of a message from Acts 11, 1 to 18. But beloved, as we wrap this up, let's, those of us who know Christ, let's be absolutely sure that our devotion to God flows from faith in God and not as a substitute for it. Because there is a terrible danger. That's exactly what some of us are doing. Let's take time. Let's examine our own hearts before the Lord. Let's be sure that our salvation is solely by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, not us. My friends sitting here, if you don't yet know Christ as your Savior, you've heard the message. My simple command to you is believe the truth. Trust in God. Turn away from that sin and know God's love and forgiveness. Receive the promised Holy Spirit as you do. If you need help, you're not sure, you got questions you want answered, for, come and ask us. Come and ask Poovin or myself or one of the deacons. Talk to whoever brought you here. Ask to find out more. We'd love to help you understand what it means to be truly saved. I'm going to close in prayer in a moment. But before we do, we're going to sing a hymn. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Verse 5 reads, when he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing, hallelujah, what a Savior. Would you stand with me and we'll sing together.